after being gone last week, it is really feeling good to be back and entering into this Exodus text with you. I know you guys looked at it last week too, and Janet Russell preached on Exodus chapter 14, which is like the story. She, in fact, when I asked her, hey, could you preach on this? She's like, you're going to give that one to me? I was like, yeah. Uh, that's like the story of, you know, God parting the waters and the Israelites going through and the Egyptian army getting all swallowed up and like the story, right? Um, freed slaves passing through uh, to freedom on the other side. And as I've said in weeks previous, the Exodus is the single most memorable and monumental event in salvation history until the arrival, the incarnation of Jesus himself. In an amazing display of power and faithfulness and compassion, Yahweh delivered a group of slaves and turned them from nothing into a nation. From descendants of this group of freed slaves would come the Savior of the world, Jesus himself. How is it, though, that thousands of years after the historical event of the Exodus, we still associate with the story? How is this event, like so many others, how is it not just merely left in a history book somewhere or a book of mythology? How has it come to maintain its meaning and actually create a movement across the world and for thousands of years? There's lots of answers to that question, but I think the short answer and one that the text speaks to tonight is that worship is the key. Worship. We've already seen how before God delivers the Israelites, he gives them the institution or the uh, ceremony of the Passover. Before he ever does the thing where the Passover happens, he gives them the Passover ceremony about the unleavened bread and the lamb and all of that stuff. And he tells them to repeat this Passover experience, this Passover ceremony, year after year after year. And the thing with the Passover is it's not just a, 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 a device to help them remember an old-fashioned story. When the, we go through the Passover, we actually say in the, in the Passover Seder, this happened to us. God delivered us. And it puts people into a participatory role. In a similar way, Exodus chapter 14, we've got all this exciting narrative about the sea parting and the people going through and the Egyptians getting swallowed up. And then in chapter 16, we've got all this narrative about people being worried about are they going to get water and they're going to get food. And that's when Yahweh gives manna and quail and all of this stuff. But in the middle, in chapter 15, we have a, a strange little interlude. We have a song. And in fact, we have a worship song maybe the most ancient worship song that we have, although I would argue that Genesis 1 is a song too. But anyway, unfortunately, we don't have a melody. Like, I think musical notation wasn't even until like the ninth century AD. So uh, we don't know how the song went. And, and let's be frank, if we did have a melody, it would be counterproductive for me to try and sing it anyway. So what I'm going to do is read the song that is Exodus chapter 15, 1 through 21. And I want to encourage you uh, to stand if you're able to do that. Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. 
The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he casts into the sea, and his, the choicest of his officers are drowned in the sea of reeds. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue and overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your wind and covered them up. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you've led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you've guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them, and, uh, bring them out and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Yahweh, where you have made your dwelling, the sanctuary, sanctuary O Lord, where your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever want to bust out some handle right there, right? For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went around after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider. He's hurled into the sea. Lord, thank you for not only an ancient song, but a song that is a praise song, it's a worship song, a song that declares your power and your character. And I pray, Holy Spirit, by your power, you would help us to see what it has for us today. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned just a minute ago, this text Exodus 15, 1 through 21, is a worship song. And rather than kind of exegete each verse like I typically do when I preach, uh, I'm going to go over kind of the big themes of this worship song. And I want to specifically talk about how worship can transform us as worshipers. First thing that we see is that worship is a response. Worship is a response. This song is a response to God's initiative to reveal himself. How has he revealed himself? Well, this song says that he's shown himself powerful. We have all these lines in Exodus 15, 1 through 21, about Yahweh throwing Egyptians and chariots and horses into the sea, about Yahweh being Israel's strength and Israel's song. And the lines poetically declare, your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. 
The people of Israel were not merely enslaved. I mean, millions of people across the ancient Near East were enslaved during this time. The Israelites were enslaved by Egypt under the reign, most likely, of Ramses II or somewhere thereabouts. And what that means is that Israel was enslaved by a country that had been a civilized player in world power for 1,800 years at the time of their captivity. We put that in perspective about how long the United States has been around compared to 1,800 years, or even Western Europe. Now, Egypt was formed 500 years roughly before that. So, I mean, this is a superpower. The point is that Israel was enslaved by an insurmountable foe, an invincible foe. The chance of their escape was zero against the people of Egypt. And frankly, from what we understand, um, it didn't seem like there was a real rebellious spirit in the Israelites anyway. They had been enslaved for over 400 years, generations and generations of people who, for the most part, if you are in systemic oppression, you kind of figure out your lot and you keep your nose down because you know if you step out of line, that taskmaster is going to not just beat you up, but hurt your kids, your wife, your elderly family. For them, there was no hope of escape until Yahweh came on the scene. Yahweh the Savior is more powerful than the most powerful army that these people could imagine. But to say that Yahweh defeated the Egyptians is only scratching the surface of this worship song. As we've seen repeatedly throughout the book of Exodus, Egypt is more than just a social-political state. It's more than just a country with a pharaoh. Egypt represents the very opposite of Yahweh. For example, Yahweh is the God of life, the God of creation, the God who called out Abraham and his descendants to be his people on earth. In the Exodus story, to contrast Yahweh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians proved to represent anti-creation. God desires fruitfulness and abundance. Egypt oppresses and enslaves. God desires life. Pharaoh sentenced the Hebrew uh, firstborn males to drowning in the Nile River. The battle between Yahweh and the Egyptians was not waged with swords. Like, God didn't raise up an army of people with swords to go, like, slash at the Egyptians. It's, it's a battle of more cosmic proportions, which we saw in the plague narratives, right? Because God wants to challenge not just Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. He wants to challenge the notion that their gods are in some way superior to him. And we're just kind of scratching the surface in those plague narratives. What's interesting is that the major religions of the ancient Near East had creation stories. And all of their creation stories, the creator gods, created the world and created people through acts of violence. And the Babylonian story, Marduk destroyed the watery chaos goddess named Tiamat. He cleaved her body in half, and her body becomes the heavens and the earth. Now, what's really interesting is that Tiamat, this chaos goddess, is depicted as being water. And she's battling and holding her own against Marduk until 
a strong wind blows upon her, splitting her in two. And while she's distracted, Marduk shoots her down the gullet with an arrow and then cleaves her in half. Have you heard of a story where wind blows water in two? And I'm just saying. There's a similar story in the Canaanite creation myth. Tiamat and Marduk are the Babylonian one. Uh, but the Egyptian creation story incorporates all of these kind of, of stories. And here, Yahweh is shown as bringing chaos into check. The biblical creation story is not riddled with violence. God creates simply with his word. It's a story of God bringing light into darkness and mass where there's void and order into the chaos of the deep. And this worship song in chapter 15 rings of language straight out of Genesis 1. Genesis 1-6, for example, says, Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters from the waters. And in 1-9, God said, let the water below the heavens be gathered up and into one place and let dry land appear. And so it was. In creation, God separates the waters of chaos and brings about dry land, the very earth itself, the terra firma, the stuff we walk on. In the Exodus story, Pharaoh and the Egyptians representing chaos are ironically swallowed up by the waters of chaos. That's like poetic justice. It's really cool if you're an original reader. I'm trying to flesh that out for you. At the same time, he has the Israelites walking through on the dry land. In the song of Exodus 15, verses 16 and 17, we read of the people passing over on dry land. Okay, so you've got the waters piled up on either side. The people of Israel passed through on dry land. And then this song in Exodus 15 says that they were planted. They go through on the dry land, then they're planted on the mountain of God, which is in his very presence. Does anyone know what event takes place in the Genesis 1 creation story after God separates the waters and makes dry land come up? Plants vegetation. Isn't that interesting? Play on that creation story. Worship. This song in 15, Exodus 15 is a response to God's power and to God's might to his ability to create. But this worship song in Exodus 15 doesn't, doesn't just stop it extolling the power of God. After all, an all-powerful God who's just powerful with no qualification would be an absolutely terrifying thing to deal with. This worship song goes further and talks about a God who is not only powerful, but good. It's Yahweh's goodness that is highlighted in Exodus 15. Specifically, his loving kindness and his faithfulness. The Hebrew word used in, in, uh, in verse 13 is hesed, which I know you've heard over and over. You should have. I, I hope you have. Everyone say hesed. For extra credit, let's get the guttural hesed. Oh, Hebrew 101 right there. Okay. Typically, hesed refers to God's faithfulness to his promises. He is the God who keeps his covenant. And that's why in this verse, in verse 13, um, or in verse 2, Moses sings, This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will praise him. He's not saying, like, I'm going to praise God because he's my dad's God, although he probably, his dad probably worshiped Yahweh too. He's talking about the fathers before him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is the God who is now keeping his covenant to these dudes from way before. 
He's a faithful God. He has hesed. The song is a response to God's faithfulness. And his faithfulness in action is played out through the redemption of his people from slavery, through their deliverance. He purchased them, says verse 16, at great cost. A worship song like this doesn't just tell of an event that brought about great joy or was especially uh, magnificent. If it was, it would just be a folk song or like the songs that the bards used to sing when a king won a victory and they write a little tune about it and people sing about it in the bar. Those are fun songs. I love me an Irish bar with some good folk songs, okay? But that's not what worship is. A good worship song gives credit to the one who's responsible for these events, for the, the one responsible for the defeat and deliverance of the oppressed. What this song says in the clearest possible way is that Yahweh is powerful and he's good and he's responsible for the deliverance of his people. Worship is then a response to God. Now, for a little bit of homework, for those of you who are like, this is too ethereal, here's something. How has God shown himself particularly powerful to you? Maybe it was an intervention in your life. As I look about, about out among you, I know some stories. I know that there has been some powerful interventions on God's behalf in your life. So maybe you could jot that down. Maybe God has shown himself powerful to you through his creation. In our pre-service prayer, Ryan was praying about the fall colors. I, I, I love that. I mean, Corey and I spent last week on an Orcas Island, and uh, uh, the colors, the magnificence of the, the water, I, it causes one to worship whoever created that. Maybe it's creation for you. How has God shown himself faithful to you? Has he redeemed you through Jesus? Have you been humbled maybe by his holiness and then lifted up by his grace? I could go on and on. I won't. But try that for, for homework. Um, write a poem about it. Write a list of bullet points if you're like me and not very artistic. Write a song. But get that, that, that's a way for us to, to worship and just recognizing and being thankful how God has been faithful and powerful among us. So worship is an act of response to what God has done and who he is. But worship is also an act of witness. It's an act of witness. Worship is never merely for the sake of God. Uh, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, but God doesn't really need you to sing songs to him. He's pretty secure already without you and me like saying great stuff about him. So while he, I'm sure he enjoys it from our heartfelt place of we're thankful to you, Lord, for rescuing us. He likes that. He's just not like, he doesn't need it like we need affirmation. See, worship is also an act of witness. It's truth-telling about who God is and what God has done. And whenever we tell the truth about God, we give witness to other people and to each other to his power and to his character. Now, what's fascinating to me from a New Testament perspective is that when we think about the Gospels that tell about the story of Jesus, uh, we're always running into these religious leaders who are obsessed with finding people's heritage. Like, if you don't have a pure line that you can prove back to um, the people of the Exodus, then you're suspect. You're somehow not as close to God as everyone else. In fact, there's a whole group of people we know as the Samaritans. They're, they show up in the Gospels a lot. 
and they have kind of mixed blood. Some of them had interbred, so they had some Jewish blood, but they had other stuff going on, and the Jews kind of stuck up their noses at the Samaritans, saying, you're not as pure a people as we are. Why do I find that interesting? I find it interesting because when the Hebrew slaves were released from captivity in Egypt, they were a mixed company. Exodus 12, 38 tells us that a mixed multitude went with these Israelites. We've seen how the Egyptian officials began to realize that Yahweh was superior to their God and to their gods and their government. And we know that the Hebrews were not the only people group enslaved in Egypt at the time. All kinds of different peoples were. And while we can't say for sure who made up this mixed multitude who went out with Israel, we can know that it wasn't just people who had pure Hebrew blood. So wrap your mind around this. It's such good news for those of us who are from the outside. That this first people who were called Israel, the people who were delivered out of Egypt and brought through the waters on dry land into the wilderness, who were then became the nation of Israel, that starting point, the people that that started with were not pure blood. There's a place for you and for me in this story as well. This is one of the stories that shapes us. After all, what makes an Israelite? According to the scripture, it's someone who's been circumcised. Now we would do baptism in, uh, in the Christian world. And someone who has faith in Yahweh. We would say you don't need to be a specific race or gender to be a Christian. You need to have faith in Jesus come, repent, be baptized, right? Everyone's invited to the, to the party. That's awesome. I guess the most important thing isn't which races made up the Exodus people, but why they joined this group of slaves in the first place. Think how risky it would be to leave with this Exodus people. I mean, granted, slavery isn't a great situation, but you got three squares a day and you knew your place in life. Now these people are just leaving with a bunch of exiles, a bunch of refugees who really don't have a plan. Moses couldn't even tell them where they were going, like, uh, we're going, following that way. I have no clue where we're going to lay our heads tonight. What would cause a people to take that kind of risk who weren't even Hebrew people in the first place? I think the answer to that is that they experienced the living God and the worshipers of God gave witness to who it was that was behind these things. One way to look at these stories is to say, wow, there's some crazy weather going on. Frogs fell out of the sky and hailstones killed everything. This crazy east wind came up and blew the sea and just happened to let these people go and swallowed up the Egyptians. I mean, that's one way to look at that. But what happens in a worship song or in a worship setting is that people with faith give word and articulation to what has happened and so these foreigners are coming in and seeing all of these things but it's the israelites who are worshiping who give witness to these events and give a name it's yahweh who's responsible for these things not uh not the other gods in the egyptian pantheon the story of the exodus is more than just a story about a group of people who got lucky it's more, in fact, way much more than the exceptional leadership of Moses. It wasn't up to random acts of weather phenomena. It was an act of Yahweh, the faithful, the powerful, and compassionate God of the universe. You see, one of the roles of worship, and in a good worship song like this one in Exodus 15, 
One of the roles of worship is to inform. Worship is the theological reflection on God's movement in life. From a non-worship perspective, we could have a poem about the blunders of Pharaoh. And it would be funny for generations to come. Remember when he used to oppress our people and now he looked like a fool? Da, da, da. I mean, there's songs like this all the time. Uh, we could have a, a funny song about the way the east wind blew and allowed people to cross the sea. But worship informs by putting values to events. In worship, we know God was the reason for the east wind. We learn it was God's power that defeated the Egyptians. It was Yahweh's faithfulness that prompted him to deliver the Israelites. Good worship tells the story of who God is and what God has done. And it's a witness to the mixed multitudes so that they too can come to a saving relationship with God. Take Jethro, for example. Remember him? Moses' father-in-law. Moses escapes from Egypt when he's a young man. Finds himself in Midian, um, a pagan place. Jethro is a priest to a pagan pantheon. And Moses marries his, his daughter Zipporah. And, you know, they get on fine. And Jethro is this pagan priest. Well, through all of these events, with Yahweh intervening and rescuing the Israelites, later on, and we'll get to this next year when we get back to Exodus, Jethro becomes part of this people. This pagan priest becomes part of the people because of the witness of the people, giving name to these events, saying this is the result of Yahweh doing these things. In worship, we give reason for the wonderful things in life. Like, we live in Bellingham, right? It's situated in one of the most beautiful regions. If we include, you know, part of BC, a little bit, you know, got the mountains and the water and the islands. I mean, I've traveled around a fair bit. Bellingham, this area stacks up real nice against a lot of places I've been to. It's beautiful here. And our non-Christian neighbors, of course, they know it's beautiful here. They enjoy the outdoors just like we do. Everyone can appreciate beauty. It's a human trait. But followers of Jesus know the creator of this wonderful creation. And we give witness to the handiwork of God among us. What a gift to get to share that with whomever might receive it. Our church community takes our service to the community seriously. As I look out among you, I see lots of different people who are invested in your neighborhoods, in this neighborhood, in your schools, in your vocation, in your family, in your friendships. You're pretty active. Like, I love this church, but I just love you guys. It's so fun to be in relationship and to be walking with Jesus together. You're an active bunch. You are invested. You do lots of things. Not a whole lot different, really, than um, a lot of my friends I know who are active socially, who don't follow Jesus. Right? Bellingham's full of a lot of great people doing a lot of great things. But worship is the place where we get to give witness to why we, at least, do these things of Christ in me because I believe that the little things we do well will be redeemed when he recreates this place when he brings new heaven new earth it's worth it when someone comes to Letters Reads Covenant Church like you have today they should experience to some degree each Sunday why we gather they should receive the reason we serve the community and the hope that we have in sometimes dark times 
It certainly isn't because we're really neat people. I think you guys are really neat, but we're not that neat. Right? It's because Jesus has changed everything on the cosmic level to our individual hearts. And so during Sunday worship, we tell the story of Jesus in some way, shape, or form every single week. We bear witness to him. We sing a song, then we have a call to worship that helps focus our attention upon God while not neglecting the stuff that we carried in that day. Church is not an escape from the world. It's a submitting of our world to the only one who can do anything about it. So we take our anger and our pain and our loss and our arrogance and our sin and our shame and we put it all at the feet of Jesus when we come in here. And the call to worship helps us do that, helps us put things into perspective. We greet one another, which I know for introverts it's your least favorite time, maybe besides the meal time. Uh, and I know that, that greeting times can be ridiculously lame and sometimes I'm tempted just to do the past the peace, but then we get into kissing, and that can be weird for some, and I don't know. But really, let me just tell you, the symbology behind the greeting time is it's an act of hospitality. It symbolizes that just like the mixed multitude that came out and became the one people of Israel, they're from all different races, so in Christ, we who have different personalities and backgrounds, socioeconomic status, gender, age, all of it, the greeting time is like a symbol that says we're family because of someone bigger. So if you ever wondered why we do what we do, that's why we do it. We sing songs of worship, songs that tell who God is and remind us of who we are. And we give witness to the trustworthiness of God by giving 10% of our income to the Lord as an offering of faith. Dang, that's hard to do some months, isn't it? We hear the scripture proclaimed, which roots us in story, in the, in the story of God. And we hear the scripture preached, digging usually, hopefully, in a healthy way, beneath the surface of the text, mining those things and helping us to, to enter in a little bit better. We gather around the table, which preaches to us each week. And I love the table partly because if I blow it up here, you're always going to get gospel there. The, the table preaches the table gives witness every week to Jesus' death and his resurrection and the forgiveness that we have in him. And we go out with a good word, bene, right? Italian, good, va bene, benissimo, uh, benediction, good speech. You, you leave on a good note. It's a charge to go out as the people of God. Worship bears witness, always pointing our community toward the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that just describes the hour and a half of Sunday worship. I mean, of course, we've all been taught that worship is a 24-7 deal, right? It's action. But why bother? Why bother? Doesn't it feel like sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, our actions are in vain? as if the problems of the world are insurmountable, as if we pray over and over again and then a Paris happens. And what's going to be next? Because you know it's not over. As if our little bits of good are mere drops in an ocean that get swallowed up and unrecognized. And again, I think that worship can help us with that problem we have of seeing how it all fits together. We've seen how worship is, first of all, a response to God, and we've seen how worship is a witness articulating the work of Jesus to each other and to the world. But a third aspect of worship made clear in Exodus 15 
is that worship reveals new possibilities, a new future. I don't know if you noticed this, but in Exodus 15, 14 through 16, Moses is singing about the people of Philistia and Moab and Canaan. And he's saying in this song that these people, these countries, are trembling at the fact that Yahweh is with Israel. And the strange thing is that at the time of the Exodus, chronologically when this was first sung, Israel hadn't even conquered those people, hadn't even met them yet. And on top of that, when you start reading like Joshua and Judges, and they do get to those people, they're not scared of Israel. Israel's the one scared of them. They're like, we're like grasshoppers, and they're like giants, and remember all this stuff? And the battles, when Israel goes into the promised land, they're bloody and complex. I mean, this song makes it sound like these other nations just fall over like stones and let Israel pass through as if it was some easy, peasy, mac and cheesy. I had to go there. It just was in my head. The additions of these verses, I think, show us how worship can interpret events and put them in perspective. See, we don't pretend everything is going to be easy in life without a struggle. That would be a lie. You're in the wrong religion if that's what you're looking for. Instead, we put the struggle into perspective, knowing that from God's 30,000 foot, however, what his view is, big view, his good over time, overall, cannot be stopped. That all things literally do work out for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Don't ever by the way, let me hear you say that someone in acute crisis. That's not the time. It's not the time, but this is a song of victory. It's a song of worship. It's a song that reminds us that, you know what? In the big scheme of things, God's will will be done, and his will is always good. Now, let's face it. Worship is oftentimes a disappointment, and I am talking about Sunday worship. From a strictly selfish point of view, it's almost always disappointing for almost everyone. There's the whole aspect of getting here. Tonight, specifically, wouldn't you rather be watching the Seahawks? Some of you barely made it out of the house because maybe your kids were crying or fighting. Um, some of you would have rather stayed home by a fire reading a book on a cool, cold, dark fall night in Bellingham. And then, once you make the decision, I'm going to go, once you get here, it's imperfect. It's probably too hot for some and too cold for others. The music has too many hymns, or not enough hymns. Zoom music. The service is too formal. I'm used to a free service, or it's, too, you know, or it's not liturgical enough. It's too loosey-goosey. What do these people even believe? The preaching is, well, you can't please everyone. And even, if you, and, and even if you get here and face the fact that it's imperfect and figure out that that's going to be the way it is, then you have to square with the fact that you don't always feel like worshiping after you get here. And you may struggle to believe the words from week to week that you're singing or that the words preached, even the good news, really applies to you. And maybe sometimes the scripture doesn't speak to you. But here's the good news. Worship isn't dependent on how you feel. The reality is, and I've said this over and over, let it sink in again, you and I become what we worship. Uh, maybe, let me be more accurate. We become like that which we worship. I'm not saying if you worship God all the time, you're going to become God. 
But that is a wonderful and a terrifying reality because I think we all know the things that we're into on the side that take up a lot of our time and energies, really our worship. And do we want to become like those things? You know, when the Israelites were worshiping literally false gods, like little idols, the warning was, if you stay on this track, you will become like them, having eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, mouths that do not speak, hearts that do not feel. Of course, he's not talking in literal terms. He's talking about your ability to see and perceive truth and God at work. You'll be numbed. That is horrifying. Conversely, when you make the sacrifice to be here, even when you do not feel like being here, even if you feel like it was lame and I'm going home, you are being transformed more and more into his likeness. It is a process like if you're a rock sitting in a river, it is a process that happens to you every much as you allow it to happen. When we participate in the worshiping community, like you are right now, when we come together in the sacrament of communion, when we worship together, we are being transformed. Sometimes it's incremental, like usually it's incremental, like you cannot tell, I don't feel much more like Jesus than I did last week. But if you start looking and you start dedicating yourself to this, you start looking years at a time, I, I, I gotta say, I think with Corey after the visit of July, I think I'm a bit more mature in Christ than I was five, ten years ago. Certainly, when we first got married 18 years ago, hopefully I'm a better, you know, I, I think so. Maybe some of that's his age, but um, <laughs> we may come here full of despair after world events like we've just witnessed recently in Paris. We may come full of personal shame and personal doubts. We may come ill we may come with economic loss that's near and dear to our heart, but when we submit those things to Jesus in worship, he opens up new horizons, new hope, a hope of a different future, a good one. And we're reminded that all things will be summed up in Christ, good old Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, that our great enemies, sin and death, have been conquered already by Jesus. And we come under the umbrella of grace mediated through his word and through song and through the loving embrace of the gathered community. Exodus 15 is a template for worship because it points us toward God and his work in Christ. In other words, Exodus 15, like all good worship songs, like all good worship liturgies, points us Lord, thank you that when we open our eyes, we don't have to strain to find you. That every story, even if it's an obscure, ancient song in Exodus, points in your direction to learn to see, learn to hear. I'm thankful, Lord, that you take us where we are at. That even now, some may not feel close to you. Some may have doubts about who you are. Some may feel 
very distant from God. Thank you that you can still work with us. That you are at work even when we feel unable to work. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your grace you would touch each one of us. Me included. Take us further on the road with you. Conform us to your likeness. Fill us with abundant life with joy in the Holy Spirit, with newness and hope. And help us to go and reflect that to the world you created. Bless you, Lord Jesus.